0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine & More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B-21.
1: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies. Our guest today is Billy Crudup, an actor you've probably seen more than you realize. He won critical praise and an Emmy Award for his performance in the series The Morning Show with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon. Its third season just premiered on Apple TV+. His film credits include Almost Famous, Sleepers, Jesus' Son, 20th Century Women, and Watchmen, where he played a DC Universe superhero who's bald and blue. He's performed for years in theater, earning four Tony nominations and winning once for the Tom Stoppard play, The Coast of Utopia. Crudup also stars in Hello Tomorrow, a futuristic series on Apple TV+, where he plays a salesman marketing timeshare properties on the moon to frustrated earthlings who look and dress like they're in the 1950s. I spoke to Billy Crudup in March, well before the actors' and writers' strikes began, when Hello Tomorrow had just premiered. Billy Crudup, welcome to Fresh Air.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, you know, I'd, I'd like you to begin by just describing the world that is presented here in "Hello Tomorrow," and we, you could call it futuristic, but that doesn't quite capture it, does it? Um, it's kind of set in the future that you would have envisioned in the 1950s. I mean, people precisely are, people are yes, driving. If you went to the
2: Expo, the World Expo. <laughs> right. They've got the hover cars and jet packs. As Nick Padani, who plays my son in this series, noted, the hover cars hover, but they don't seem to go any faster. (laughs) And there's that kind of um, imaginations or sort of they took a a wink and a nod approach to, uh, I think, all of the gadgets that occupy our lives now. That, you know, may or may not live up to the expectations that we had hoped.
1: Right. The hover cars have big fins like the cars in the 50s. And the robots have these big cylindrical bodies with these little spindly arms. It's, it's quite funny in a way. Well, let's hear a clip from Hello Tomorrow. Uh, this is in the first episode where you're at um, a counter of a diner grabbing a bite and uh, ever the salesman, you spot a guy a couple of seats over, a middle-aged guy who's down in the dumps, and you strike up a conversation, which he wants no part of, in which you tell him you can see he's a solid working man who just wants the best for his family, and he was replaced by a robot, a tin can, as you put it, and you have something that will help him. You're selling time shares on the moon. I'll just mention that in the middle of this scene, there's a point where you show him a special token of the life that awaits him. That's a moon rock. He d- you drop it on the counter. You'll hear that as we get into the scene. So we'll pick this up after you've been talking to this, this down in the dump guy, played by Michael Harney for a couple of minutes. Um, you speak first. Let's listen.
3: tell you the fact that you haven't slugged me yet, it means that you got enough hope left in you to hear the one word that is gonna save your life. You get hit a lot. Well, every time I'm wrong, but it's been a while. You left out the part I got a daughter don't pick up the phone when I call. You got a magic word that fixes that one? First, I just wanna show you something, okay? What's that? That. It's from the Sea of Serenity. It's two hundred forty-three thousand miles above us on the bright side of the moon. My son picked that out for me. That's that's my prized possession. Wow. Ah, well, there you go. You said it yourself. What? Wow. That's the one word none of us can live without. And I will promise you this, hand on heart, hundreds of happy folks to vouch. You'll be saying. Wow, I love living on the moon.
1: Where do I sign? (laughs) 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 And that is from Hello Tomorrow, the the new series on Apple TV starring our guest Billy Crudup. Um, You were such a committed salesman. You are so good at this and this. I understand your dad was a great salesman. Is this right?
2: He, well, I don't know if he was a great salesman, but he was a salesman. In fact, I'm sure he wasn't a great salesman when it comes to the bottom line, but he was a devoted salesman.
1: What kind of stuff did your dad sell?
2: Well, there's nothing that he wouldn't sell. Usually stuff that fell off a truck, but there were some you know, rather colorful objects like um, an inflatable ice chest that uh, he wanted to market to professional sports teams. And he was living in Austin at the time, so he thought it would be a great um, accompaniment to some rafting. There's a lot of rafting around Austin. And so if you had an inflatable ice chest that kept your drinks cold while you floated down the river, that would be a, um, a tremendous idea. It didn't work was the one problem. It didn't keep things cold. And um, it was not a flotation device, so he had to have them reordered and have that printed (laughs) on the outside. Uh, There was all sorts of golf gadgets. There were Farrah Fawcett posters, uh, an umbrella hat um, that he got uh, Lou Brock to endorse at one point. It was called the Brock Umbrella. (laughs) And uh, if he had hit his pet rock, yes, I think that would have been satisfying that was the object in the 70s that was every salesman's Shangri-La. All mm. you do is you pick up a rock, you put it in a box, and you say that's your pet rock. And uh, needless to say, the margins are pretty good on that. Yeah. And my dad was always looking for that and never found it. But I think he liked moving from commodity to commodity more.
1: Well, I wanted to talk about The Morning Show, the Apple TV series that you want an Emmy for. Um you play a studio executive with this morning news show with in which the anchors initially are Jennifer Aniston and then eventually Reese Witherspoon. The shakeup there is part of the story. How did you get involved in the project?
2: Well, m- mercifully, uh, Aline Kashishian, who is my manager, she also manages Jennifer Aniston. And when I was doing this play, Harry Clark, that I really loved doing, but it was, it was quite taxing. And it was in a small theater called the Vineyard Theater here in New York, directed by Lee Silverman, written by David Kale.
1: You know what, Bill? I- I'm glad you brought that up, because I had heard that this had played a role. Tell just yeah, Take a moment and tell us about this play. It's an amazing part. It's, what, a dozen roles you played?
2: It was an extraordinary part. And there's a wonderful performing artist named David Kale, who's a songwriter and he started to develop what would be one person shows and had some incredible success. At a certain point, the Vineyard Theater asked him if he had anything because they wanted to produce one of his works, and he said, well, I've written something, but it's for somebody else. And he had actually, before he had contacted Lee or myself, written this play called Harry Clark, which was a film noir in his mind, uh, solo performance. And it was going to be starring Billy Crudup, directed by Lee Silverman. He showed us the actual page that he had written this out on uh, well before we were involved. And so they sent me the script and I thought, no, this is a terrible idea. Who's gonna memorize 48 pages? This is um, a a fool's errand. I can't possibly do this. It it, it would be um, more than I can handle. And obviously I went to sleep that night, woke up middle of the night, Who else gets offered a solo (laughs) performance in New York? No out-of-town trial. You have to do it. And so I signed up for it. And um, Aline Kashishian saw it. She said, well, I have to get everybody to come and see it. You're terrific. You play all these different parts. And Jen came, and she enjoyed it too. And her producing partner, Kristen Hahn and Amanda Anchor they were there. They said... Um, we're doing a new show. We'd love for you to take a look at it and see if there's any parts. When when you
1: say Jen, you mean Jennifer Aniston. Yeah, right. Jennifer Um, Aniston. And
2: and so she was really the catalyst for my involvement and um, I owe her a tremendous amount. So I read it and there was this one weirdo that I really responded to. And I think it was part because, in part, because having performed in Harry Clark and managed 40 odd pages of text. I was at that moment adept and primed to work with text. Uh, the, you know, all the things that I was talking about early on in my career about building an instrument that works. Well, when you're doing a play like that and you're playing a char- you're you're playing so many different characters who have different kinds of accents, you you, you need to have a a, a flexible um, Instrument for lack of a better word. Your mouth has to move fast. You have to know how to breathe at the right time You have to stay on your voice. You have to use different placements of your voice. Your physicality has to be um, uh, Flexible and so when I saw this guy who had all these big ideas about the changing landscape of news um, at, at, During this critical time and in in sort of social upheaval Um it really appealed to me that somebody thought in paragraphs. And so after some I had to do a little selling, but after some selling, they came around and it has been a glorious experience for me.
1: Well, let's let's talk about the morning show. Um but first I figured let's listen to a clip. This is from the first season. Where your character, Corey Ellison, he's president of the news division, kind of a disruptor in the role, is talking to the executive producer of the morning show, this morning news show. And the producer is played by Mark Duplass. And they're talking about what you know the show and the network need to do to compete in this new media world. And you, I'll just note you begin by referring to a competing show called Your Day America or YDA. So let's listen to your discussion here. You speak first.
3: We have to get well ahead of YDA. We can't stand a blow to the news division. Broadcast networks, they can't stand a blow to anything. Right now, (laughs) it's kind of funny. You know how the entire world of broadcast could just fall off a cliff in a few years. like, boom, bang, lights out. Unless we reinvent it, we're all going to get bought out by tech unless something changes. I don't know, tech or not. Uh, there will always be a need for reliable, quality journalism. People get their horrible news delivered to the palm of their hand 24-7, and they get it the way that they like it, colored the way that they want it. And news is awful, but humanity is addicted to it, and the whole world is depressed by it. That's why what we really need on television right now, it's not news or... journalism, is entertainment. This is just like during the Depression, when people wanted to watch Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance around on expensive sets and live in the dream world. Dream worlds are essential. Depressed people, they need escape, you know?
1: And that's our guest, Billy Crudup, in the morning show. So tell us about Corey Ellison.
3: If
2: memory serves, that was the, the first day that I actually worked on the morning show, and Wow. As soon as I heard the top of it, all I could remember was the flop sweat that I was covered in, because I had tried to convince everybody that I had this part in the bag, and then I had to deliver in the moment, and it was a very nervy kind of experience. But Mimi Leader, um, who I just adore beyond words, was doing these really extravagant, cool uh, shots that um, they, you know, required a kind of. Um, a dance, you know, with the camera, which is not uncomplicated to do when you're playing a guy who already speaks faster than you do. He thinks faster than you do. He has a kind of joy, a joy at his own imagination that is kind of rare to come by. And you have to be unencumbered. You have to have as little self-consciousness to play those kinds of characters authentically. And that was not what was happening on the day. I was sweating my butt off. You were off. encumbered. <laughs> I was encumbered. Um, but the the character itself, the way that I saw him, was as an unapologetic capitalist and somebody who was very capable of reading a room and understanding where the power structure, uh, how the where where the power was in uh, social structure, and doing the best that he could to uh, ascend uh, in whatever way he could in that moment. Everything is transactional for him. He's always thinking of sort of upward mobility. He's always thinking of um, magnificent problem solving. He's sort of fabulous in that way. And he hadn't yet experienced a kind of failure, professional failure to give him the humility to calm down. So he's he's, unbridled uh, by his enthusiasm for being able to solve the world. And there is an incredible joy at playing that um, character when I have enough time to prepare so I'm not stumbling over the words because he doesn't stumble and he, he gets through those paragraphs in a single breath. And um, it's been... Uh, um. A totally life-changing experience being on television. There is no more going under the radar. Um, and I, I, have had the experience of 25 years of being an actor and very rarely was I stopped before, but subsequent to that, it's a pretty common occurrence. So it, it has been extraordinary creatively and, um, extraordinary
1: practically. How do you how do you like that being seen on the street and recognized all the time now?
2: A lot more now than I did when I was uh, first starting out. Um, actually the, the there were there are entertaining parts about it. Some people, you know, they they get it wrong. When I was doing Arcadia for instance, the we did a preview, I came the next night for the next show, got there early. And there was a, a, a young girl who was waiting by the door with um, a piece of paper or a, or what seemed like a photograph. And she said, I saw the show last night. I just thought you were absolutely extraordinary. Could you sign this for me? And it was a picture of Robert Sean Leonard on horseback. <laughs> she obviously thought I was Robert Sean Leonard who was also in the play, a wonderful man and a wonderful actor. And uh, so I signed it Robert John Leonard. <laughs> uh, so you get those experiences sometimes too, or people just come up and poke you and they say, where do I know you from? And I say, I, I'm not sure. We went to high school together. Uh, I, I don't think we did. Sure we did. Why are you being such a jerk now? You know, you get those <laughs> kinds of experiences too. But um, this, this has been, I think, um, so nice for me because people are very entertained by that character. So- they typically come up to me with um, uh, uh, a, a, a warmth and generosity, which is really nice.
1: Yeah, no, it it is great fun to watch you doing that. I mean, this boundless confidence—it's um, really fun. I know it me. is.
2: <laughs> I wish you could see. Like as soon as they yell "cut," I just crumble. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was Duplass who was really like keeping me upright the first season. He's he, he's a guy who understands how to manage the entire machine. He's a producer, a right, writer, right. director, an actor. And uh, I mean, I was really um, terrified.
1: Yeah. You, you know, you mentioned that being on television gave you a different level of recognition. And, you know, you, you got into TV kind of late in your career, I guess. Like Gypsy in 2017, I think, was the first TV series. Yeah, um, yeah. And it struck me that, you know, one of the things, y- you do a lot of preparation for your roles. And if it's a movie or a play – you've got the script and the character arc is all there for you to study and and work from and sometimes in tv series you don't know where your character is going to be going by the end of the season sometimes the writers haven't even written all the episodes does that make it harder
2: well you hit the nail on the head dave that that was the the sticking point for me uh, early on and you know fortunately i had other opportunities but i didn't quite understand that process of not knowing where it was going, and the notion of committing to a character for potentially six years—that that I had to confront that on a payphone on Fifty Seventh Street and Seventh Avenue in nineteen ninety four, and it was not interested in having that experience again. There was a, a, a television show that I had screen tested for; that they wanted me to fly out to Los Angeles and uh test again with the executives there and in order to just fly out there i had to sign a deal memo which said if i got the part i was committed for 6 years and i was just out of school <laughs> learning to be a character actor and i thought if i do this i am screwed i don't i won't know what i'm doing i'll get stuck in uh uh um habits that may not be applicable to some of the other things that i want to do and I think it just took me time to actually build up enough capability to, to, to manage doing a TV show. Even still, it is incredibly, incredibly difficult, difficult work for the exact reasons that, that you mentioned. Um, the scripts are evolving. You don't have the same kind of preparation. The tools that you've relied on your entire career are completely obsolete and you still have to do it <laughs> and hopefully do it well. So having had the experience of doing a number of television shows now, some for a couple of years, um, it's a remarkable challenge and not for the faint of heart.
1: Huh? So, so you, you still struggle sometimes with feeling confident about a part. The vulnerability oh, never goes gosh. away. Oh my gosh, yes,
2: yeah. really. I, like, when I was doing Harry Clark, uh, I, I routinely had panic attacks on stage. And even doing Corey, the The pressure sometimes of managing those pieces of text, those monologues, with an extravagant camera move, is <laughs> it's uncomfortable, Dave. Uh, so I that has not diminished. And in fact, I think what happens when you're you have all this confidence and hubris when you're younger, uh, when that evaporates w- at, with your ability to memorize text. There is a very real vulnerability that appears that um, is not like just the sadness from not getting a part that you really wanted.
1: Actor Billy Crudup recorded in March. He stars with Jennifer Aniston and Reese Witherspoon in the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show. We'll hear more of our interview after a break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air.
4: This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go.
0: Hi, this is Molly C.B. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air.
1: And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air.
0: If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter.
2: It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people
1: who help make the show.
0: You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show.
2: Imagine, an email you enjoy getting.
0: To subscribe, go to WHYY.org slash
1: Let's get back to my interview with actor Billy Crudup. He's had a long career on screen and stage. His films include Almost Famous, 20th Century Women, and Watchmen. And he won an Emmy award for his performance in the Apple TV Plus series The Morning Show. Its third season premiered last week. We recorded our interview in March, long before the actors and writers' strikes began. You uh, went to school and studied communications and then went to the Graduate School of Acting at NYU, the Tisch Graduate Program, um, which I guess was a good place because New York is a great place to learn acting. There's a lot of actors around. I'm wondering, obviously, other than the experience of doing a lot of acting while you were there, do you feel you learned, got tools or approaches to acting that had a lasting impact when you got into the business?
2: The way that the Zelda Fitch Handler, an incredible artistic director and a great mind for the theater, gave an inspirational speech at the beginning of every year that made you feel like being an actor and being a, a part of the tradition of storytelling was necessary, which was an unbelievable feeling to have. You're um, often so put off by your desire to be, in front of people and the sort of vanity that goes with it and you need it and you want it and you despise it. And she gave an alternate point of view, which was, this is a glorious human tradition. And if you're going to undertake it, you should undertake it as a professional and a craftsperson. So make sure to build an instrument that can sustain you over time and build a way of being that allows you to be reflective, allows you to pivot, allows you to adjust and grow. And I don't think there's any chance I could have played Jack Billings with the kind of dexterity that Amit and Lucas demanded without not just the three years of training, but the 20 years of application of that training. It was essential for me. I mean, I could go on and on. It was that important an experience to me. The last play that I did was in 2017 or 18, I think. And uh, in it, I played over 10 characters, and I would never have been able to manage that situation practically and emotionally and psychologically of standing up on stage um, alone for an hour and 15 minutes and telling a story, playing all those characters. And it really was what I trusted in, what I put my faith in, was the foundation that that I learned at NYU.
1: Right. Um, I know that you learned how to prepare and that you prepared diligently for every role. Um, It wasn't that long after you got out of graduate school, I understand, that you managed to get a role – in Tom Stoppard's play *Arcadia*, which is—I haven't seen it—but actually, our producer Lauren Quinzel, who booked our interview, saw you in that performance. This—we're going back a few years. Oh here. wow! Yeah,
2: 1995. Yeah, yeah,
1: and was enormously impressed. I mean, you play—you play this guy Septimus Hodge, who's an English 19th-century English tutor tutoring a, a a young teenager, and he knows Lord Byron and all. I mean. I'd, it's it's quite a tale. Um, there's an interesting story about you getting the part and the audition. You want to just share this with us?
2: <laughs> sure. Um, Daniel Swee was the casting director for Lincoln Center, and I got uh, an audition, as you do. Your agent calls you and says, okay, there's a part for a, a 22-year-old guy in a play, a new Tom Stoppard play. And as an acting student, the notion of even reading a new Tom Stoppard play that was incidentally going to be directed by Trevor Nunn, who I had been watching since my junior year of high school on um, these cassette tapes. I think they were called Acting Shakespeare, I can't remember. But lions in the theater, not just in my imagination, but practically speaking. I think he was the youngest person ever run the RSC, the Royal Shakespeare Company. And so these names are sort of thrown out there Uh, in a way that is heart-stopping to uh, a new graduate from school. And so there was a kind of magic already attached to just being able to audition. And when you started to read the part, you could see that it wasn't just a great Tom Stopper play. It was a masterpiece of theater. In any case, I went in, I I did my audition. Um, I had a British accent, so I was a little bit clumsy with that because I have to work at it and Daniel Swee gave me an adjustment and I kind of understood what he meant but you know there's with acting there's a cerebral understanding and then there's a visceral understanding so until you have the visceral understanding you, you you don't really process it in a way that feels authentic it feels kind of like you're in your head you're thinking about your choice so in any case I did it and he said thanks very much I closed the door uh, and as soon as the door closed the echo in the hallway um, reverberated, and I thought,
3: "Oh crap!"
2: Now I know what he meant. And you could feel, you know, like the door is locked now. I can't get back inside. So I went outside to the payphone, called my agent. I said, "I really feel like there's a uh, adjustment that I can make. Could you get me back in?" And I was new enough as an actor to not understand that agents hear that every day. Um, that's probably <laughs> all all they hear is calls from their clients saying, oh, can you get me back in? I finally understand it now. Or I messed it up. I was just a little, the pressure got to me. Can I get back in? Um, and so sure enough, he called Daniel Sweeney. And Daniel said, no, he did fine. He's just not right for the part. But I was so invigorated by the um, understanding that uh, I, I had about the character by way of Daniel that I was taught in school to keep, learning if you reach a point where you have a threshold of or your your threshold of understanding is exceeded in some way or you grow in some way keep on that path pursue growth at all costs and so I started to rehearse it and sure enough a couple weeks later Daniel called and said well we haven't been able to find anybody if you really feel like you were able to make some adjustments come back in and by that point I knew it like back and forth. I could do that first scene for you right now. Um, and uh, the next day I met with Trevor Nunn and the day after that I got the part and it, um, it totally changed um, the trajectory of my career.
1: Wow. You got some good movie roles not long after that with some, some serious actors. And while you were building your career, you did some voiceover work as a lot of actors do. And one was in a commercial that made a phrase iconic. Let's listen to this. Two tickets,
3: $28. Two hot dogs, two popcorns, and two sodas, $18. One autographed baseball, $45. Real conversation with 11-year-old son, priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard, except it all over, even Major League Ballparks.
1: What a great piece of ad copy. Uh, You did versions of that ad for how long?
2: 13 Uh, years. Wow. Wow. (laughs) It was truly incredible.
1: And not to
2: mention the fact that I took the job just to lay down a demo track for a woman who was working for McCann Erickson, the ad agency that was trying to win the account, Um, but they hadn't won the account. So I just went in for the $200 session fee to set up a demo track. And then when they landed the account, they said, yeah, use whatever voice you used in the demo. And uh, I can remember the first couple of years feeling a little tied down. I was excited to be doing films and I was off in Santa Fe, working on a film called The High Low Country with Woody Harrelson. And one weekend I had to drive to Albuquerque to lay down some tracks for MasterCard. And I can remember it being annoying at the moment. And uh, it was probably a year after that, I wasn't working. I didn't have any prospects or something that I realized uh, I had the dream job that I could maintain this as long as possible and make a little bit of money that would um, enable me to make the kinds of artistic choices I wanted to, to, to still be able to live in New York.
1: So the pay was, was good, right? I mean, for, well, certainly by the hour, at
2: least (laughs) it was regular. And frankly, if you're an actor, you know, I think probably after the first couple of years we would negotiate a contract and whatever it is, you, they say, you know, you'll do 20 commercials for $10,000 and uh, you do them over the course of six months or 12 months, whatever it is, that's steady, predictable pay. That's very unusual as you're an up-and-coming actor. So that was the crucial part for me. It was steady and predictable.
1: And so, well, you don't need to give me a number, but these, the years of doing the MasterCard commercials was really able to, to sustain you and in- let you do the work. You Most definitely. Yeah, yeah. Most yeah.
2: definitely. It was, and I've, Dave probably auditioned for 400 voiceovers in the time since then. And I think I have landed three.
1: <laughs> wow. Actor Billy Crudup. He co-stars in the Apple TV Plus series, The Morning Show. Its third season premiered last week. We'll hear more of our interview after this short break. This is Fresh Air.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Total Wine & More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Paramount+.
2: Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount+, Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Caitlin, a teen reeling from her parents' divorce, steals a valuable bird in order to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner that leads her to a new outlook on life. Don't miss Little Wing, now streaming
4: exclusively on Paramount+, Plus, rated PG-13. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: What does it mean to be black in America? And NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever
1: you get your podcasts. I wanted to talk about Almost Famous, which is a film you did with Cameron Crowe, I guess, in 2000 or so. It's it's. Set in the 1970s, I'm sure a lot of people saw this. It's a movie about a teenager with writing talent who talks his way into an assignment from Rolling Stone to travel with a a rock band called Stillwater and, and write a story about them. And you're in the band. You're the band's best musician, a virtuoso guitar player. Um there are a lot of great concert scenes in here. I gather you had not played guitar when you got this job. Um we we've all played some air guitar, right? But this had to be a little more authentic. How did how did you learn to do what you know to to sell yourself as a as a rock guitarist?
2: Well, I, in the same way that you fake everything else. Um you have to understand the the narrative device that the filmmaker or the playwright is trying to use to establish that you're um, a virtuoso whatever it is and for Cameron it was really one shot that he wanted a close-up on my fingers during a, a solo and then wanted to be able to pan up to me and so I essentially spent four months trying to learn that one riff and the other components of it about handling the guitar, being a part of the band. We had band practice for five weeks or four weeks or six weeks. I can't remember now. But every night, we would end up in, I think, Westwood somewhere at a a studio. And Peter Frampton and Nancy Wilson and Cameron Crowe would try to teach the four of us how to become a band.
1: That's Nancy Wilson of the band Heart, right? Correct.
2: Uh, And I confess, whether or not we had actually filmed the movie, the experience of Bandcamp was worth the price of admission. I mean, into being an actor. It was so glorious to be there with Nancy Wilson and Peter Franton and Cameron Crowe, hear their stories. There was an enormous pressure because I didn't want to suck as a virtuosic guitarist. But um, the joy that came from uh, being a part of a rock band, it was there in the room. So it was one of those lucky experiences.
1: Well so so I mean you're in a room I mean that's not like being on a stage in a in a huge auditorium of screaming fans right what
2: what was the so with that and that was that was yet to come we we had that moment at the Palladium um when we were shooting a live show that appears in the movie and Cameron starts off backstage we're all sort of I've had just had this conversation with with William's mother, and she's sort of chastised me, and then we have to go out. That's the
1: young writer, right, yeah. Right, That's yeah. the young
2: writer, uh, played by Patrick Fugett. Um, And we go out on the stage, and it's pitch black, and there's 1,500 extras there, which is an enormous uh, amount of extras. I'm not entirely sure how they managed it, but they did. And it was packed in there, and they play the music over playback, and let me tell you, the effect of even a fake audience screaming for you while you're playing fake guitar is beyond anything I've experienced. I can understand immediately how musicians become uh, contorted in their psyches because you are truly... Idolized and worshipped in a way that's uh, unusual,
1: right? As I recall, there's one scene where the place is dark, and it's your guitar lick that starts the set, and the lights come that's on. It. It. It's this explosion of light and exactly. sound and music. Wow! Oh, I just got chills
2: thinking about it again. It was so vi- it's such a vi- incredibly visceral moment.
1: Yeah. Part of this story is about, you know, road culture in, among rock stars. Mm-hmm. You know, guys in their 20s and groupies mm-hmm. and roadies and all of that. And I, I, I thought we would hear a short scene here. This, this is the band, I think in the story you're in Topeka, Kansas, and a concert has ended badly and you end up after the concert with this writer, William, and you— um, encounter some high school kids who invite you to a party. Um, some real say, people. Say,
2: Dave, yeah, I think that's what they're called.
1: Yes, right. right. Well, and so the scene we're going to hear, you're at the party and you're really high, I think on acid actually, and you're talking to these I guess they're high school students, and you're holding forth to them in a way that to, oh, in, your, yes. to, in your altered state seems profound. let's let's listen.
3: You, Aaron are what it's all about. You're real. Your room is real. Your friends are real. Real, man, real, you know? Real. Real, you know? You're, you're, you're more important than all the, the silly machinery. Silly machinery, and you know it. In 11 years, it's going to be 1984. Man, think about that. Want us to see me feed a mouse to my snake?
1: Yes. <laughs> Great line to finish with. That—that um, that is our guest, Billy Crudup, in the movie Almost Famous. You know, I, I want to just play one more little scene from that party. This is a short one. It's—it you end up on the roof of a garage, which is mm-hmm. over a studio, over a swimming pool. And you're standing there and, you know, dozens of kids are, bo- are below you just loving having this rock star at their party. And you get carried away and, and here's a little of what what you say. Let's listen.
3: <laughs> I am a golden god! Yeah! 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 I, I am a golden god! Yeah!
1: Yeah! A golden god. Has that phrase followed you throughout your career when you see people on the street?
2: Well, most notably, when I encountered uh, Robert Plant uh, at LAX, apparently, as reported by Cameron, that line came from him. Uh, He witnessed it. He had long golden locks. But I I saw Robert Plant, and I was like, okay, I'll go up and talk to him. Um, And maybe this will be true. And also, this will be my chance to talk to Robert Plant. (laughs) How awesome would that be? But I panicked, and I went the other way. And then I boarded uh, the plane, and there he was sitting adjacent to me and so again I panicked for five hours but when we landed as I pulled my carry-on off uh out of the compartment he took the moment to remark on how crappy my carry-on was and said well that looks like that seemed better days at which point I said my name is Billy Crudup I played Russell Hammond in Almost Famous it's reported that you said um I'm a golden god and Cameron saw that is that true and he was like, oh, it is you. Wait, that's my line. <laughs> and I said, well, it's my line now. And walked <laughs> off the plane and hand on heart, the flight attendant goes, oh, the two golden gods. <laughs> so it, it has followed me around only when I employ it, Dave.
1: Well, Billy Cruda, thanks so much for speaking with us. It's, it's been a lot of fun.
2: Dave, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I hope people enjoy Hello Tomorrow.
1: Billy Crudup, recorded in March. He stars in the futurist series Hello Tomorrow and co-stars in The Morning Show, both on Apple TV+. The third season of The Morning Show premiered last week. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new film A Haunting in Venice, an Agatha Christie adaptation starring Kenneth Branagh as the famous Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. This is Fresh Air.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy explains how Betterment's technology helps investors better understand and save on taxes. So taxes are a real cost of investing, as are fees. Understanding your after-tax, after-fee returns is really what's important for investors. An example would be when you buy and sell Uh, securities frequently, you can pay a lot of taxes because short-term capital gains, meaning I bought it and I sold it fairly quickly, have higher taxes than long-term capital gains. Our technology in particular will tell you what the tax implication of a particular move you'd like to make is going to be before you make that move so that you're making it with full transparency. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed.
1: Our film critic Justin Chang says that A Haunting in Venice, now in theaters, is the best of the three Agatha Christie adaptations starring Kenneth Branagh as the famous Belgian detective Hercule Poirot. The movie, which Branagh also directed, is an adaptation of Christie's mystery novel Halloween Party, and it also features Tina Fey and Michelle Yeoh. Here's Justin's review.
5: You can always count on Agatha Christie for a surprise. And the big twist in A Haunting in Venice is that it's actually a pretty terrific movie. I say this as a diehard Christie fan who didn't much care for Kenneth Branagh's earlier adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. Charming as he was in the role of Hercule Poirot, the movies themselves felt like lavish but superfluous retreads of two of the author's best-known classics. One of the lessons of A Haunting in Venice is that sometimes it's a good idea to go with weaker source material. Christie's 1969 novel, Halloween Party, is one of her thinner whodunits, and Brana and his screenwriter, Michael Green, have smartly overhauled the story, which is now set in 1947 Venice. They've also gleefully embraced the Halloween theme, taking the cozy conventions of the detective story and pushing them in the direction of a full-blown haunted house thriller. Okay, so the result isn't exactly Don't Look Now, the most richly atmospheric horror movie ever shot in Venice. But Brona and his collaborators, especially the cinematographer Harris Zambarlikus, and the production designer John Paul Kelly, have clearly fallen under the spell of one of the world's most beautiful and cinematically striking cities. While there are the expectedly scenic shots of gondolas and canals at sunset, most of the action takes place after dark, at a magnificent palazzo owned by a famed opera singer, played by Kelly Riley. She's hosting a lavish Halloween party, where Poirot is one of the guests, tagging along with his longtime American friend Ariadne Oliver, a popular mystery novelist played with snappy wit by Tina Fey. Also in attendance are Jamie Dornan as a troubled doctor and an entrancing Michelle Yeoh as a medium, known as the unholy Mrs. Reynolds, who says she can speak to the dead. Poirot, ever the rationalist, sets out to debunk her claim. I must tell you, madame, I have been all my life uncharmed by your kind. My kind? Opportunists who prey on the vulnerable,
3: You don't believe in the soul's endurance after death.
5: I have lost my faith.
3: How sad for you.
5: Yes, it is most sad. The truth is sad. Mrs. Reynolds performs a seance, hoping to contact the spirit of the opera singer's daughter, who died under mysterious circumstances at the Palazzo a year earlier. Soon, another death will take place. One of the party guests turns up murdered. And while Poirot is officially retired, he decides to take on the case. He even asks his mystery writer friend, Miss Oliver, to help him interview suspects, though not before first questioning her about her whereabouts at the time of the killing.
4: Don't you dare look at me like a murder suspect. We're old friends.
5: Every murderer is somebody's old friend. But you have written too many clever murders to fall at the foot of your first victim, and you are, so far, viably alibied by the chef for the time, which is why I shall now ask you to assist me in my investigation.
0: When do we start?
5: When you collect for me our host.
0: I knew you were in there somewhere. All it took was a corpse and look at you. Hercule Poirot all over again.
5: As Poirot, Brana is clearly having so much fun wearing that enormous mustache and speaking in that droll French accent that it's been hard not to enjoy his company, even when the movies have been lackluster. For once, though, the case he's investigating is just as pleasurable to get lost in. It's an unusually spooky story. The Palazzo, we find out early on, is rumored to be haunted by the vengeful ghosts of children who died there years ago during an outbreak of the plague. Brana piles on the freaky visuals and jolting sound effects to the point where even a supreme skeptic like Poirot begins to question what's going on. These horror elements may be unabashedly creaky and derivative, but they work because the movie embraces them to the hilt. A Haunting in Venice sometimes feels closer to the work of Christie's undersung contemporary John Dixon Carr, whose brilliant detective stories often flirted with the possibility of the supernatural. That said, the actual solution to the mystery, while clever enough, isn't especially ingenious or complicated. What gives the story its deeper resonance is its potent sense of time and place. It's just two years after the end of World War II, and many of the suspects have witnessed unspeakable horrors. The medium, Mrs. Reynolds, was a nurse during the war, which may account for why she feels such an affinity for the dead. Everyone, from the grieving opera singer to the doctor traumatized by his memories, seems to be mourning some kind of loss. In Braun's retelling, Poirot is himself a World War I veteran. One of the reasons he's such a staunch atheist is that he's seen too much cruelty and suffering to believe that God exists. He doesn't exactly change his mind by the end of A Haunting in Venice, but it's testament to this movie's poignancy that Poirot emerges from his retirement with a renewed belief that he can still do some good in the world. He's eagerly looking forward to his next case. And so, to my delight, am I.
1: Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed A Haunting in Venice, directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh. On Monday's show, we speak with actor, producer, director, and activist Carrie Washington. She's written a new memoir titled Thicker Than Water about her career as an award-winning performer and the discovery of a secret she learns as an adult about her origins— I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. E-commerce logistics making you question why you started your business. Time to outsource fulfillment to the experts over at ShipBob. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob.